0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. This is your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm so pleased to be joined by Catherine Dickinson, author of Ringleaders of Redemption, How Medieval Dance Became Sacred. It was published in February of 2021 by Oxford University Press as part of the Oxford Studies in Historical Theology series. Catherine, so glad you could join us. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, this is an excellent book. I'm so excited to get into it with you. But before we do that, I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Of course. So my academic training is primarily in religious studies. Uh, So going back to uh, when I was a college student at the University of California, San Diego, I uh, obtained my double major in religion and French literature. And then I went on to get my master's degree in religious studies at New York University, uh, followed by my doctorate in religious studies at Stanford University. And and since then I've done a few uh, research fellowships and postdocs, such as places like University of Southern California and Los Angeles, most recently the Center for Ballet and the Arts at New York University. And now I find myself in public relations at Simmons University in Boston, but actively pursuing academic writing projects, um, publishing widely on medieval religion and literature and uh, performance and iconography. And then I also will say relevant to, I think, this discussion today, I am also trained as a dancer. Uh, so I started you know, as a young child, trained in classical ballet, And then in my teens, I was actively um, performing in productions uh, with a a regional dance company. I was living just outside Los Angeles at the time. And um, I continued to dance and perform throughout college and then uh, to some extent in, in
0: graduate school as well. That's wonderful. What made you interested in writing on this particular subject?
1: Yeah, there's a few um, answers to that question. So first of all, um, you know, when I was a graduate student, I realized my, you know, my two principal interests were specifically religion and dance. So religion was my principal intellectual interest, specifically medieval Christianity, which I had been trained for many years to do. And then as, as I just told you, I used to be um, a, a ballet dancer. So dance is always close to my heart. Um, and I thought that writing a book on medieval religious dance would be the perfect marriage of my two interests. And then um, I would say another reason I was drawn to this topic is as I was beginning my preliminary research on in medieval dance, on medieval dance, there was very little written, very little scholarship. So I, I found a few sporadic articles but there was almost no anglophone scholarship so the only slightly more substantive studies that i found at the time were written you know in german or italian or french Um, and certainly nothing had been written that was really comprehensive you know that kind of looked at you know dance in the bible and the cult of the saints and the liturgy i mean usually these studies were very specific and didn't really give you a holistic view of medieval dance and then I think the the last thing I'll say to answer your question, Ryan, is, um, uh, so I, I, I do a lot of dance studies as well, partake in the dance studies conference and have a lot of friends who are dance scholars. And so what I realized is that there's a major lacuna in dance studies um, curriculum. So I'm, I'm, of course, based in the United States, so I can't speak for other countries. But um, I know in the U.S., um, like if you're a student pursuing a BFA in dance or an MFA, or even a PhD in dance studies, you have to take dance history. So you would take courses um, that would include dance history in the Euro-American tradition. And I found out that scholars were rarely teaching any dance history before the year 1500. And in many cases, they weren't even starting until the reign of Louis XIV, already in the mid 17th century. And I thought that was such a loss um, for these students because it gives them this sense that like people weren't dancing before the Renaissance, which is certainly not true. Um, dance was very vital for, for pretty much any pre-modern culture. Um, so I, I thought if I could, you know, achieve this, write a kind of comprehensive book on medieval dance, um, then it would also um, be important to to dance pedagogy and dance curriculum.
0: Now, your book is basically divided into these two parts, and the first part tells the story about dance being brought in to the Christian religion, to the Christian church, and and you you start with some key biblical or scriptural examples that show maybe we could say some conflicting attitudes or especially some conflicting interpretations of how dance is being represented in the, the scriptural text. What, what are some of these examples?
1: Sure. Um. So there's, there's, like you said, definitely kind of a spectrum of, of how dance was portrayed um, religiously. So you have like as one kind of negative example, you have from the book of Exodus, the dance around the golden calf, Um, in which, you know, uh, the Israelites have kind of strayed and, you know, Moses is temporarily away and then they uh, dance um, around this idol. So it's a dance that's very much um, emphasizing idolatry, um, veering away from Yahweh and the true religion. Um, And, you know, this this narrative, of course, gets picked up by medieval Christians, you know, theologians, commentators of the Bible. And um, so they see dance as as very much, you know, something that's pagan, something from this old world that that's, you know, is kind of anti-Christian. They even have certain, I I give some examples in which um, the dance around the Golden Gaff um, also substantiates medieval anti-Semitism. a lot of images and texts that really emphasize the dancer's Jewishness. So you have that element going on. But then if you turn to another example, so perhaps, um, I think one of the most significant examples in that in the Bible chapter is the dance of King David. So, also an Old Testament figure, um, a, you know, a king who, who was by no means in the course of his life, you know, morally impeccable, as we know. But um, there's a, a you know wonderful moment um, in in the in Scripture where he dances. The Ark of the Covenant is being brought into the city. Um, people are, you know, um, preparing animals for sacrifice. Um, there's music; it's a very festive atmosphere. And King David is so overcome with this proximity to the sacred that he he kind of dances with abandon. Um, so, and the, and the Bible gives clues, also the Vulgate, the Bible Latin, you know, what this dance may have looked like. And and one of the things I talk about is. Um, His dance may have been a wild dance. Uh, We have the Latin saltare, which is not really a formalized dance. It's it's kind of saltatory and jumping and leaping and a bit wild. Um, So there's kind of controversy that he brings into this dance. There's also evidence that he may have been partially nude while he danced. Um, So there's, so there's kind of all these questions and controversy about David's dance, but if you fast forward to the medieval period, um, there's a number of um, kind of commentaries on that dance, but one of the key um, uh, kind of key symbolism or significance, according to medieval uh, theologians, was that David's dance was kind of this ultimate expression of humility, and therefore it's a precursor to the Christian virtue of humility. And then taking that even further, they saw King David, you know, debasing himself with this saltatory, you know, striptease dance as even a precursor to the passion of Christ. Um, because likewise, Christ kind of went, underwent this kind of theater of humiliation, um, you know, when he when he was uh, undergoing the passion. So, you know, these are, are really astonishing Um, kind of uh, interpretations that had long standing consequences for the role of dance in the church in the middle ages. So I even referred to biblical dancers as its prototypes of either sinful or holy dancers. And in many cases, like in, you know, the liturgy or in, or in monastic settings, a dance like King David would often be um, highlighted as an example of, you know, if we dance like King David, then it will be okay. Um, so, so yeah, that that Bible chapters is really fundamental for kind of mapping out, you know, where where the book kind of goes.
0: You've mentioned this this idea of prototype and how dance, in in some really fascinating ways, with some of the theory that you engage, is this um, time and chronology connecting event that that bridges the past and the present with the future. Uh, There's this idea of the of the figura, um, this typological or kind of teleological theorization around dance as an art form. I wonder if you could just give us a little taste on what what that theory helps us to to appreciate.
1: Yeah so in the bible chapter i draw upon the notion of the figura um and i'm very inspired by the you know the the um great literary critic eric Auerbach and he looked at the the figure as how Um, Christian commentators could relate the Old Testament to the New Testament. So, you know, every episode in the Old Testament is a key to revealing the truth that comes later. Um, So like you said, there's definitely this kind of teleological narrative they're driving. So the example I gave with David, the dance of David, um, that fast forward becomes the passion of the Christ. So yeah, dance is something that's like really temporally slippery, that you know, it kind of goes between you know different eras and can inform eschatology. Of course, medieval Christians, as historian Caroline Walker Bynum has shown, um, they believed af- after you you die, you actually get your body back. So even heaven can be this embodied experience. And um, there's there're numerous um, representations. Of um, the blessed dancing in heaven, so that becomes part of you know your afterlife that you would also be a dancer. Um, so yeah, dance is, is very central to kind of all these um, theological paradigms. And then one other thing I would say that you know dance and kind of connecting the past and the present, and this was something that quite surprised me when I was researching for the liturgy chapter, which which really looks at um, dances that would have been. Um, performed you know in a in a kind of church cathedral setting or on holy days. I also add church dramas to that chapter and I look at some of the most um, influential liturgists around the 13th century and it was really fascinating to me that when they describe certain dance rituals, these liturgists were very aware of the quote unquote you know pagan, classical past of dance. So they would say something like, oh, back in, you know, the old days of Rome, you know, the pagans would do this kind of dance at the Saturnalia or the solstice or the calends of January. But today we do this dance to celebrate, you know, Christmas or Easter, whatever it is. So Rather than kind of completely disavowing that pre-Christian past, they were kind of integrating it and, and recalibrating it in, in, a, in a new way. And, um, and then, of course, you know, these liturgical dance, like dances performed at Easter, um, would have some kind of eschatological significance as well. So it's really, you see their dance being this vehicle connecting past, um, present and
0: future so we've started talking about this, where you're taking some of the, the theory into the, the way that dance is being incorporated in the liturgy. It's also being incorporated in these cultic and saint communities. This isn't happening in one direction. There's a lot of um, back and forth and, and disagreement on, on the role that dance should or shouldn't have.
1: Yeah, so certainly that's that's kind of um, something that occurs throughout the book. I and I note in my introduction, dance. Even though I'm arguing that the Middle Ages ushered in the sacralization of dance to a large extent, dance is something that's always controversial. You know, because it's so deeply embodied. I mean, there's you know you can fall into temptation and lust and things like that. So that's always like a part of the narrative. Um, but I think with the saints, um, so one thing that I, I found is that um a lot of dances were being implemented um, you know, at uh, cultic centers, you know, where where there might be famous relics or or a kind of saints shrine, um processions, you know, that would happen, um, a lot of dance content and hagiography. So um, a saint themselves might dance, and that would be part of their identity, like I say with St. Francis, um, but also when a saint performs a posthumous miracle, that would be then kind of consecrated by the whole community coming together in, in kind of a festive dance. And so I was definitely highlighting, you know, to what extent um, dance, when, when paired with the cult of the saints, helps, you know, sacralize dance in the Western tradition but one other thing, and I think I get into it in, in the Saints chapter to some extent, there's a little bit of what I would call like a dark side of medieval dance going on too um so this is not something that I emphasize on every page, of course you know it's it's not like the whole book, but it is there um so what I mean by the dark side of medieval dance is there there's moments where you know clearly um you know, church authorities at some point realize, well, look, these people, you know, lay Christians love to dance. Um, they don't want to stop dancing. So maybe we can rework this. So they're dancing, you know, for the purposes of, you know, um, imbibing doctrine. So so dance almost becomes, has some kind of function for uh, kind of inculcating religious dogma um, and things like that. So I saw that as a little bit dark because it, it kind of, you know, this in, institution, institutionalization of dance in some way contributes to, you know, this, uh, what scholars have called the colonizing project of Christendom, you know, so, so there's, so there's that as well. Like um, dance is really, um, you know, kind of a tool for inculcating the masses as well.
0: Well, thank you for that um, that overview of this first section of your book, Catherine. Now, we've we've heard the story of dance being brought into the medieval Christian church. This second section of your book kind of assumes that it's already here, but we're going to start to have some theological reflection around dance as now it is a part of this faith community. You talk about this corporeal turn that happens in medieval theology, so. I guess the question is, how does dance, especially by the time we get to Dante, which I found to be a, a fascinating part of your of your discussion, turn from something to be strictly avoided or even something to be restrained, but actually into a, a spiritual discipline to be pursued?
1: Yeah. So one of one of the things I I do bring out in the introduction and that certainly plays a role throughout the book is that um, around you know the 13th century. You have, as, as Caroline Walker Bynum and other historians and medievalists have noted, um, there is more emphasis on um, the body of Christ. You have the transubstantiation where when Christians, you know, partake in the Eucharist or communion rite, it's not just simply ingesting the bread and wine, but rather that at that moment of ingestion, it, you know, kind of alchemically becomes Christ's body and blood. So and there's and there's new emphasis on, um, you know, the suffering in Christ, you know, his physical suffering and so forth. So I what I believe is that because dance is, you know, quintessentially um, an embodied activity, you know, it's so um, physically centered that it really plays out in, um, you know, it, it really gets imbricated in this new kind of emphasis on incarnational theology and, and can be kind of used and manipulated in, in various ways. Um, so I, I think it's, yeah, it's it really um, relates to kind of some central premises in, in late medieval theology and the way people were, you know, thinking about, um, you know, what constitutes the core of Christianity. So I, I think dance in in many ways, um, you know, uh, partook in in that kind of a discourse.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the role that dance plays in Dante's um, Purgatorio? And I, I just thought that was just such a, a fascinating bit. I would hate for our listeners not to get a little uh, taste of that.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed writing that piece as well. Um, so there's a few kind of key moments of dance in the, in the purgatorio, the second section of Dante's divine comedy. And uh, so here, you know, Dante and his guide Virgil have just come through hell and are now meeting um, sinners who um, have basically repented and are on an active path of kind of redeeming themselves. Um, so it's a lot of emphasis on intentionality and, um, so, we, so I'll just, I'll describe like a few key dance moments. So one is, uh, lo and behold, the dance of David appears in purgatory. So this is the realm of the prideful sinners. So the you know, in purgatory, there's a mountain and all the sinners are divided by, you know, the seven deadly sins. So when you get, when you get to the King David section, um, it's the prideful. And according to Dante, pride was one of the worst human sins. And, and Dante himself identifies with the prideful. He even says at one moment, I anticipate spending a long time here, you know, once I'm gone. Uh, so it's very personal to him. So the, the punishment for the prideful sinners is they had these huge boulders on their back. So they're bent over with a burden. So you if you consider their physicality, you know, that bending over, it's like the opposite of being, you know, aloof. So it's it's kind of a counter pride um, uh, comportment. So, anyways, um, one of the um, kinds of spiritual instruction that these sinners receive is they look at this kind of marble tableau with various, um, you know, biblical and historical figures. But one of the central figures is King David, and specifically showing him dancing before the ark. So what I discuss in the chapter is that, um, you know, these sinners whose, you know, their, their central sin is pride, look to King David as an example of humility, and that emboldens them. You know, to to kind of um, to repent, to kind of pay off their sin, to you know do their penance, and of course they're doing this in a group. It's um, purgatory is also the birth, the rebirth of community. Um, it's social, so so it's rebuilding of a kind of Christian communitas. So that's one thing I talk about, and then later on, um, Dante's gone through all the terraces, gone through all the sins. So he's supposedly cleansed at this point, And he arrives at the last part of Mount Purgatory, which is called the earthly paradise, uh, which is essentially um, basically the garden of Eden, but before the fall. And here um, he encounters this, uh, what I consider a very mysterious woman. Her name is Matilda. She is the only person in the whole divine comedy um, who we don't really know who she is. Most of Dante's characters are from you know Greek mythology or the Bible or contemporary Florence. Um, you know we don't really know. There's there's a lot of guesses as to who she was, but we don't know. Um, but what is striking about Matilda to me is that he encounters her singing and dancing, and she later you know um, brings Dante in these kind of dance rituals um, and. You know, so one thing that I I thought was really fascinating is, you know, here's Dante cleansed of all his sin. He's ready to be reunited with Beatrice, ready to, you know, go up to the stars to tour paradise with her. And yet at this moment, Dante brings in dance. And that's kind of central to this experience of, you know, consecrating um, that he's now free of sin. And I think it says something about, you know, Dante's view of the human condition that, you know, we don't have to um, kind of leave everything uh, at the doorstep when we, when we go to, you know, when we achieve salvation. I mean, dance, um, the body, um, Matilda even sings romantic lyrics, even a sense of romantic love can still be a part of our humanity that we take with us. And so I thought that was um, really profound.
0: As we move towards the end of this part of your book, I'm going to maybe lump together a bit these two chapters that both talk about the the interpersonal nature that dance can often lead towards and and we see this both in these mystical spiritual traditions but also as dance becomes associated with this courtly romantic tradition so how does this shift start to take place and and how is it affected by the highly gendered and, and even hierarchical ideas that were being associated with with dance
1: yeah so I think I would um answer your question in two different ways um so I think with you mentioned the mystical dance and here I, I start with kind of a central premise um, that you know, a very broad definition of mysticism is to create union between the religious practitioner and some kind of other entity, whether that be God, whether that be something else like in a Buddhist tradition, it may not be atheistic. Um, So I kind of like nominally go with that definition of mysticism. And with the mystics I encountered in my research, um, they use dance, whether whether it be an actual dance in the in the nunnery or, you know, in their visions, writing out their visions um, that, you know, dance happens in their in their imagination. Um, and it's dance as a way to connect to Christ and to have some kind of transcendent experience. And so so there, dance very much um creates that, allows for that kind of intersubjective, or as you said, interpersonal nature of a religious experience um, that that is very meaningful to them. So I would, yeah, I think, you know, in the 13th century, you have, you know, the rise of, you know, affect in in medieval piety. Um, Certainly, you know, you have more female mystics. And as I argue in that chapter, I believe the reason I found many more women enacting mystical dance than, you know, than men is, of course, at this time, you know, women are not allowed to you know administer the sacraments they're you know they don't have the same um, uh, kind of pastoral liturgical um, um, privileges as men so so dance is a way for them to use their bodies to kind of transcend all that um, and then I think so that's with the whole mystical realm how I would address the interpersonal issue and then with the courtly dances um, I think I would just say that, you know, dance in the Middle Ages um, was very much a social activity. Um, If you look at especially these, you know, so-called secular dances, the dances that would be performed at court, you know, in a great hall with lords and ladies and things like that. So often you have a circular formation, as far as we know, or a linear formation. You'd be holding hands. You'd also be singing with one another while you danced. Um, Dance, as far as we know, was one of the few ways um, that men and women... Of the upper classes um, would be socialized together, you know. So it really brought men and women together. So therefore, it could be you know, function as courtship. So I think um, the way medieval dance was um, was just inherently interpersonal and relational. Um, you know, if you look at dance today, um, there's a lot like like in my background of ballet, you have like the star virtuoso you know, and kind of the soloist on stage. And, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, you do have some court jesters or some acrobats, but dance is really um, much more so a social activity. So I think that's what lends itself to um, the kind of interpersonal texture.
0: Well, that discussion of the the social nature of dance, especially in the medieval period, I think tease us up really well for your your closing reflections as you look at the shift from late medieval into early modern paradigms. You you talk about the dance macabre and and the shift in late medieval dance towards death and then into the early modern era towards individuality and interiority. After this this long journey that we've we've taken together on the history of dance in into the medieval church, how does dance transition now from the the sacred into this new kind of secular
1: yeah it's a great question so what i've found is that there there seems to be a shift around the 15th century um so in the medieval period um as far as we know as i said dance was very social or kind of sacred or processional and when you get to a 15th century in places like italy Um, you have this um, basically a professionalization of dance. So courtiers begin to hire dancing masters and the steps, uh, as far as we know, become um, more intricate, more technical. Uh, Dance treatise, uh, rather these dance uh, ballet masters uh, Italy and elsewhere, begin to write dance treatises. They also develop a system of dance notation. In other words, um, taking graphic symbols or pictorial symbols that would encode for movement, um, similar to musical notation. You know, So you have like a note that with those series of notes, you can reconstruct a composer's intended melody. Um, but... In the West, dance notation, as far as we know, starts in the 15th century. Um, in India, I should say it's much earlier. It was like 200 BCE. The Western wow. system of dance notation is at the dawn of the Renaissance. And I think this you know this codifying of the body, this technicizing of the body, um, making it into a civilizing regime, um, not only professionalizes dance, but as I argue in that conclusion, really ushers in the secularization of dance. Um, so people aren't, these dancing masters aren't concerned with the indexicality between the spirit and the body um, as much as we, we've we seen a few centuries earlier. Um, these dances are performed pretty much exclusively at court. They're not in a you know religious, religious setting. Um, so I, I think dance really transforms starting in the 15th century.
0: Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I think that anyone could, could find something to take from this, this treasure of research that you've provided us. But who, who do you really hope might pick up this book? What kind of impact do you really want to see it have in the, in the readership?
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's a few answers to that question. Um, first of all, I'll just say my intended audience My target audience, I was really trying to pitch this as an interdisciplinary book. So I, you know, as a religion scholar, of course, I was reaching out to scholars of religion. As also someone trained as a medievalist, I wanted scholars of the Middle Ages to read this book. And then as for reasons I told you earlier, that dance scholars, dance um, studies professors will will pick up this book. So that was my target audience. Um, and then in terms of impact, I would say probably three things. So the first, um, the first uh, kind of impact I hope this book has is to correct the master narrative. So, you know, the, the kind of traditional idea of medieval dance and even Christian dance was because there were so many dance prohibitions in the Middle Ages and dance was considered kind of sinful, that therefore either people didn't really dance that much or dance just really played no role in medieval religious life. So I've hopefully, you know, kind of, kind of challenged that claim. And in fact, when I tell my non-academic friends, you know, what is this book about? I usually say my book is medieval footloose. So if you, (laughs) if you recall the 1980s film footloose with Kevin Bacon, you know, he's in like some conservative, Small town in America, and the I guess the powers that be, city councilors and local priest, want to ban public dancing, which of course saddens the local youth. And Kevin Bacon, his character, uh, marshals evidence from the Bible. He also uses King David as an example of how dance can be good for society. And so then they allow dance, and you know everyone's happy. So I'm all obviously looking at a very different context, but the story is very similar. Um so anyways yeah just dismantling that that kind of master narrative is one impact I hope I have. Um I think the second impact has to do with contributing to the role of embodiment in Christian studies. So I'm certainly not the first scholar to do this at all. And in fact, in my field, historian Caroline Bynum was doing this back in the 80s, um, looking at you know women's relationship with their bodies and spirituality. But I think it's really important to continue this line of inquiry because I think at least maybe not so much in scholarly circles today, but in popular realm, I think there's still this lingering um, kind of assumption that there's a dichotomy between Western religions, i.e. religions of the book that are text-based, that are rational, you know, um, and then on the other side of that, you have, you know, Eastern religions, maybe from Asia or Africa. I'd also add indigenous Americas, that are quote unquote oral or embodied. And I think this dichotomy, when when you go back, especially to pre-modern history, this dichotomy is very artificial and I think can actually have some dangerous consequences. So I wanna further kind of challenge that. And then the last thing I'll say about the impact is I really hope that readers will come away from this book having a much more kind of deeper and holistic understanding of dance. So I'm, of course, you know, I'm, I'm an American, I'm, I'm talking to you from the United States, and it seems like most Americans would encounter dance you know, in popular culture. So we have, you know, all these dance competition TV shows, you know, we have like, do you think you can dance? America's Got Talent, Dancing with the Stars, World of Dance and so forth. And it shows dance with this great aura of spectacularity, you know, dance is a spectacle, the dancers perform these like tricks, you know, it's highly technical. It's also very commercialized. And if you go back to a lot of pre-modern cultures, dance has a lot more multifaceted richness. So if you just look at my study in the Middle Ages, dance gets bound up with the sacred, with transcendence, with gender, with sexuality, with notions of mortality um, and what lies beyond. And I think it's really important to understand dance in, in that deeper, holistic way. Because, um, so some scholars subscribe to this theory, as do I, that dance is perhaps the most fundamental of all human arts. In other words, before people made music, before people did cave paintings, before people reenacted you know, dramas, people were dancing, they were experimenting with their bodies enacting non-utilitarian movement, which then developed into rhythmic movement. So obviously we don't have empirical evidence to like verify that, we're talking way back, but I, I think that's, that's very plausible. So I think to extend that further, dance is very important to the story of humanity. Um, And as humanities scholars, I think part of our greatest quest is really to better understand the human condition and what makes us human. And I believe that a study of dance can really be revelatory in that way.
0: That's great, Catherine. Now that you've finished Medieval Footloose, (laughs) Ringleaders of Redemption, I wonder what's next for you?
1: Yeah, so I, I can talk about two, two things briefly. So one is a, a new book project that also is about medieval dance, um, but I'm really focusing on dance iconography. So medieval, mostly manuscript illustrations, but also you know sculpture and paintings and things like that, that depict dancers. And so I had done a, a, a lot of research at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York City, because they have a fairly substantial medieval manuscript collection. And I had in in my research uncovered around 300 images of medieval dancers, and they're very diverse. So there's like peasant dancers and court jesters and, you know, things like that. So I I think one question I have is um, my first book, although it did have images, most of my conclusions were based on texts. So my next big question is, okay, what can the images tell us? that the texts don't? Can they reveal another kind of understanding of medieval dance? And so that's kind of one thing I'm working on. And then another thing I I would like to tell your listeners is that I'm co-editing a special issue of the journal Post-Medieval, a journal of medieval cultural studies. This issue is entitled Legacies of Medieval Dance. Um, As far as I know, it's the only kind of major Um, special issue of any journal in any language devoted to medieval dance. And I envision this to be a very robust collection. We have around 20 contributors and um, they are bringing some really interesting and timely perspectives to medieval dance, such as critical race theory, um, colonial studies, uh, disability studies, game theory, even. So I'm very excited about this. And um, that should be published around September of 2023.
0: Well, those both sound absolutely fascinating. This has been a conversation with Catherine Dickison, author of Ringleaders of Redemption, How Medieval Dance Became Sacred. You can get your copy now from Oxford University Press. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Ryan.
0: And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of The New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com, where you can browse our library of over 12,000 author interviews. Whatever you're interested in, I'm sure you'll find it there. But that's it for now. I hope you have a great day.